0: To our study this morning on the Lord's Supper. Suffice it to say, it has been an amazing study for us. In the topic of the Lord's Supper, it has been a dynamic study because communion covers, really spans both Testaments. It goes all the way back to Passover in the book of Exodus because when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, it was the Passover meal. So it starts at Exodus, and it goes all the way to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record um, when the historical event when Christ instituted this ordinance. And then 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul gives instructions. Um, More to the point, he gives rebukes on the abuses of the Lord's Supper. So it's been a dynamic study, and it has been a challenge to me as a Bible expositor to teach this topic with clarity and faithfulness. I mean, it's been a challenge, but by the grace of God, we'll get some clarity and understanding on what the Bible has to say about communion. And now, because uh, there is just so much to cover this morning in our second study of the Lord's Supper, uh, we will just briefly cover our last week's study. Just a very brief overview of part one, Let's go to our outline. The five synonymous terms of the Lord's Supper are Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, Breaking of Bread, and of course, the Lord's Supper. These five terms are synonymous. They all refer to this one ordinance of the Breaking of Bread and Drinking of the Cup instituted by Christ. Secondly, the origin of the Lord's Supper is with Christ It didn't start with Apostle Paul, nor the disciples and the apostles. It started with Christ himself on the eve before his death. He commissioned this to be perpetual ordinance, a perpetual memorial to be practiced by the church until his return. Thirdly, we looked at last week three erroneous views on the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Three erroneous views. First of all, it was never meant to be regarded as a sacrifice. We are not sacrificing to God these elements. The Bible teaches us that there is no sacrifice, no altar, no change in the substance of the elements. Bread remains bread. Wine remains as wine. The only sacrifice mentioned in the Bible is the once for all finished sacrifice Of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're not sacrificing Christ again and again. By having communion. Secondly, the Lord's Supper was never meant to confer grace or benefit to the participants. The elements are in no way a means of grace. They cannot, do not confer grace where grace does not already exist. The bread and the cup do not convert, justify or Or convey blessing on the heart of an unbeliever. For a non Christian, I think Furco's testimony is so appropriate this day that for a non Christian to partake of communion, there is no benefit, there is no blessing by the elements alone. Third erroneous view is that the Lord's Lord's Supper was not meant to be a mere social feast, it is not a social meal. Not a means to foster fellowship, unity, or love in the church. These are three erroneous um, proposed purposes or purposes for for the Lord's Supper. Then let's review the three erroneous practices surrounding the Lord's Supper. Three erroneous practices. First of all, The Lord's Supper is not administered rightly when it is seen as the first, foremost, and most important practice in Christian worship. This is the case in the Roman Catholic Church. For them, the high point of the worship service comes when the priest consecrates the bread, and by his spiritual powers ordained to him, literally transforms that bread into the body of Christ. And the cup becomes the blood of Christ. And when that communion is handed out and people take those elements and they become saved. Now, they're not saved, they become saved. It is a process of salvation that becomes the high point of the service. Well, we believe the New Testament is clear. That that is not a right way to administer the Lord's Supper. Where the Lord's Supper towers over and overrides everything in the life of the church. There is no authority of that in the Word of God. I mean, for one, I believe preaching the Word, in my judgment, is a far more important ordinance than the Lord's Supper. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is not administered rightly when it is administered with an extravagant degree of outward ceremony and veneration. I said this last week. I'm not condoning a real casual attitude, irreverent attitude towards communion what I'm against, and what the Bible seems to be what the Bible is against is this extravagant, outward, excessive ritual of, of adoring the elements, adoring this practice of communion. Where we see the lights, the ornaments, the flowers, the gold plated dishes and bowls, the whole ceremonialism of the whole process, the gesturing and the vows and the postures to processions. That is not in the Scriptures. I mean, when Christ instituted the Passover, it was at someone's home. It was during a meal, during dinner. The New Testament church met in homes. The New Testament Christians were not rich, by and large. They met in regular homes. It was a lot less formal than what we think of it is today. And that is not administered rightly. All that practice really really undermines and pollutes the true purpose and a right practice of what the Lord's Supper ought to be. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is not administered rightly when it is indiscriminately pressed on Christians and non-Christians. And again, I'm going to refer to you all sermon, Tom. Um, the, your, your testimony is so appropriate. Where the pastor said a non-believer is not to participate in the Lord's Supper. It is a family meal. It is for only for members of the family Only for those who believe in Jesus Christ, who profess to be followers of our Lord. I'll defend this as the last point of the sermon, so we'll leave it at that for the time being. But these are the points that we covered last week. For this morning, we're just going to cover three points. Just three points. The biblical purpose, practice, and participants of the Lord's Supper. Three Ps. The biblical purpose, practice, practice and participants of the Lord's Supper. Well, let's get to the purpose. First of all, the biblical purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember Christ. It is to remember Christ. That is why we practice communion. That is what we are to be busy doing while we take the bread and take the cup. Because communion is a memorial to Christ. Our Lord's words, when He said, Do this in remembrance of Me, is recorded each time the Lord's Supper is mentioned in the New Testament. In Matthew's account, in Mark's account, in Luke's account, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul highlights this historical event, each time the words of Christ is recorded, Do this in remembrance of Me. The physical objects of bread and the cup were called on by our Lord, to be taken as memorials of his life and death. Memorials. Now, travel with me 2,000 years in, in history and place yourself as one of the disciples. I want you to consider that for the Jews living at that time, for the Jews in the Old Testament, this was something very common. God used several physical reminders to remind the people of Israel about about his character, about his deeds, about his covenants. So for the disciples who were steeped in Judaism, this was perfectly understandable. That the Lord would establish such an ordinance. Because of their background in Judaism, it was completely understood by the disciples that the bread represented the body of Christ, the cup represented the blood, and they were living symbols, reminding them of the death of Christ that was to come. This type of physical memorial was seen in many places in the Old Testament. I'll go through a few of them with you. The first such physical reminder goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 9. And in fact, this physical reminder reminded God, not so much man. It also reminds man, but the reminder was directed towards God. Remember when God judged the world, and everyone died except for no one in his family? And He created this rainbow, right? So that when it starts raining hard, we would not fear His judgment coming. And it would also be a reminder, God says in Genesis 9, that it's a promise, a reminder of His promise to never again flood the earth and to destroy all life. In Genesis 17, God commands Abraham and all his descendants to be circumcised. It's a reminder of God's covenant. Unilateral, unconditional covenant with Abraham. In Numbers 15, God commanded the priests of Israel to make tassels in the corners of their garments with a blue cord on each tassel. Now, why would He do this? Numbers 15:39, So that you will remember all the commands of the Lord. Verse 40. So that you will remember to obey all my commands and remember to be consecrated to your God these tassels for the priests were, were reminders of their covenant, covenant with God and the commands to obey God. In Leviticus 23, 42 through 44, one of the seven ordained feasts of God for the Old Testament for Israel, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Israelites were commanded to live in tents for seven days. Why? So that you will, your descendants will remember that I brought them out of Egypt; that I am the Lord your God. Two more in Joshua chapter four, one through seven. Joshua is now the leader of Israel. Moses is dead and passed. They cross the Jordan River to enter the land of Canaan, and they cross on dry ground, just like God spread the Red Sea. He he spread again the Jordan River, same miracle. It was God's way of confirming Joshua's leadership. He is now your man. Now once they crossed over, Joshua turns to the tribes of Israel and he says, One from each tribe among you. Go and pick up a stone from the middle of the river, from the dry ground. Each man goes and picks up a stone and Joshua stacks these stones right by the riverbed. And he tells them why he did this in verse 6. These stones are to serve as a sign among you. For in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And the writer of Joshua says, those stones are there to this day. They still testify. Those stones remind us of God's faithfulness, of bringing the people of Israel into the promised land. Right, So for, for a Jew, this was clearly understood because it was spread throughout the Old Testament. And on the ultimate memorial, the central memorial that all Jews were aware of, was the Passover meal. Right, This Passover meal pointed to, was a memorial to God's deliverance of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. For the Jew, Jewish people then, for Jewish people now. This central event in the history of Israel is like, for us, the 4th of July, Thanksgiving, and Christmas all rolled into one. Because this event solidified God's ownership of Israel. God said, I delivered you. You are mine. I redeemed you. I brought you out. It solidified the covenant relationship. This event revealed that God is a God of compassion a God of mercy, and a God who remembers His covenant. He remembered His covenant with Abraham. Though His people were were in captive in Egypt, God remembered His promise. And He's a covenant-keeping God, and He redeemed the people of Israel. And to this day, when an Orthodox Jewish family, they celebrate the Passover meal, there is a dialogue between the host of the meal, usually the father of the house, and one of the younger sons. That remind everyone present of God's deliverance from Egypt to Israel. As the guests, let me just take it briefly to the one one part of the Passover meal. As the guests are gathered around the table, the host of the feast took some bitter herbs. He dipped them in a sauce, dips them in a sauce, and he ate them and gave them to others. Soon as that is done, everyone clears the table in hurried excitement. To excite curiosity, they remove everything off the table. And then there are four cups. The second of the four cup of, cups of wine was filled, and at this time was assigned to one of the ordained sons, Or the son would ask its father, Father, why is this night different from all other nights? For on all other nights we eat leavened or unleavened bread, but on this night we only eat unleavened bread. On all other nights we eat any kind of herbs, but on this night we only eat, eat bitter herbs. On all other nights we eat meat roasted, stewed or boiled, but on this night, Father, we only eat roasted lamb. Why is this night so special? In reply, the host related to the guests, the history of Israel. And he to recount we are observing this Passover meal because one day We were slaves in Egypt. And God redeemed us. God delivered us and brought us to the promised land. And so, this became a perpetual memorial, reminding the Jews of God's work in the Exodus. So, Lord's Supper is directly parallel to the Passover for the Jews. Passover points to the central event in the history of Israel for us. It's a body of believers. New Testament church, the Lord's Supper, points to the central event, not in the history of a nation, central event in the history of mankind, the death of God's Son. That is the purpose of communion. A memorial, reminding us the redeemed community of the Lord Jesus Christ, of His life and His death. So... It is not a sacrifice. It points to the one and only sacrifice. It is not a means of grace. God has given us grace in Christ. And it is not a social feast, like a country club get-together, where we use it to love one another and unite the body. No, we celebrate our union with Christ. A union that we cannot achieve, achieved by us through the Son's death. The Zondervan Bible Encyclopedia says that communion is like a living sermon containing both memorial and prophecy. It is a dramatic means of keeping alive the sacred memory of Jesus' supreme love on the cross and the blessed hope of His glorious return. It's a memorial remembering Christ. Now, as we remember Christ, there are three aspects to the remembrance and communion. Three aspects. First of all, it points to the death of Christ. It points to the death of Christ. First Corinthians eleven twenty-six. Whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the death of our Lord. Through the act of communion, we remember our Lord's death. The elements call the participants to remember Christ's death on the cross. To remember it means to go back in one's mind and to call to mind the truths of Scripture. To remember Jesus Christ, to relive with Him His life, His agony, His suffering and death as much as is humanly possible. This ordinance points to the supreme importance and centrality of the cross that His death is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. That without the cross, without Calvary, everything else is rendered meaningless. This is the cornerstone where all of Christianity stands. And our Lord knows this. Our Lord knows that the church, if, you, if the church forgets the cross, the church is lost. So He carefully appointed an ordinance in which His sacrifice on the cross was to be kept in perpetual remembrance. And that is the Lord's Supper. I see such wisdom in this. This ensures that no matter how far the church of Christ might stray from orthodoxy, no matter how liberal a church might get, no matter how ritualistic a church might get, no matter how bad the pastor is, can be the worst false teacher in the world, if a church professes to be a church of Jesus Christ, at least once a year, they are forced, they are compelled to observe the Lord's Supper. And they can't get around the fact that it points to the death of Christ. So at least once a year, every church, to some degree, proclaims the gospel. So the memorial points to the death of Christ. Secondly, it points to the reality of the life in Christ. It is amazing what the Lord's Supper does. It points us to the past, and then it also points us to the present Beloved, when we participate in communion, we're not just recalling a long-lost, long-passed-away figure of history 2,000 years ago. But it is a living reminder of Christ's living presence in us and among us. As Christ hosted the first communion, He also hosts every communion after that. First Corinthians 10.16 states that the supper is a sharing in the person and work of Christ. Our outward action of eating and drinking, they are an expression and a vivid reminder that all who participate, our sins are forgiven. That we are forgiven, all our sins are gone. We are reminded that Christ is in us and that we are in Christ. It reminds us, it points to the truth that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are now part of God's family. Vivid picture of the reality of the life in Christ. Third aspect, it points to the future. 1 Corinthians 11.26 Paul says, We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The Lord's Supper points us from Calvary to the present, all the way to the Messianic banquet, where one day we will sit and dine with Christ in the Kingdom of God. Revelations 19.9, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we sit there, we will sit there with joy and celebration because our enemies, sin, Satan, the world system and death will be under His feet. We will be righteous. We will be glorified. We will see Christ as He is. And one day we will drink this cup in His presence. It points the believer to the reality of the future, the promise that Christ will come back. And we will see Him face to face. So in a way, communion is a time for solemn confession, solemn worship. At the same time, communion is a time for joy and celebration of the expectation That this war, this struggle against sin, this fight that we're in as a Christian, this this long race that we're running, will one day be over. And then we'll be with Christ. It's reminding us of the future. So it's in a sense, the joyous occasion. These three aspects sum up the biblical purpose of the Lord's Supper. It is simple, isn't it? To remember Christ. Remember His death. Remember the present benefit we have because of His death. And the return of Christ. The eschaton, the millennial kingdom, where we will reign with Christ forever. Well, let's move on to the biblical practice of the Lord's Supper. And if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34. We will exposit these verses during this section of the message. Now, outside of the Gospel accounts, this is the only other place where instructions on the Lord's Supper are given. We need to understand that these instructions in verses 17 through 34 are negative in nature. Paul is not so much giving instructions on how to conduct the Lord's Supper. You won't find that here. What you will find is Paul rebuking the church at Corinth because they're doing it all wrong. So as... The church, 2,000 years later almost, we glean principles on how to practice the Lord's Supper by a negative example. All right? Through Paul's rebuke, through Paul's warnings and admonitions, we find how to biblically practice and conduct the Lord's Supper. Let me give you guys a brief outline of this passage. 17 through 22 is rebuke. 23 through 26 is review. Review of the Lord's Supper, historical event when Christ instituted the communion. And 27 through 34 is warning. I can not think of a word that started with a letter R, so it's warning. Now let's go to the text, guys. Verse 17. Paul says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That's how he starts off the section on the communion. What a severe rebuke. Paul is telling them they would have been better off if they had stayed home rather than meet together at the church. It's like your coach telling you, you know, you turn the ball over so much. You miss so many shots. You missed so many defensive assignments. It would have been better for our team if you didn't play at all. You not only didn't contribute to the team, you were a detriment to the team. Why did you come? I'm a so harsh coach. I'm just trying, right? Well, that's what Paul is saying, the church at Corinth. It's better if you guys didn't come to church, didn't gather together for worship. Their worship services, instead of being helpful and edifying, they were in fact destructive. And that is awful, isn't it? When a church gets to a place where its meetings are for the worse, then it's in real trouble. Like there's no solution, right? I mean, if, if coming together harms the body then like you're almost beyond the point of help. And that's what Paul is saying to them. For the Corinthian believers, the worst thing they could do for their spiritual growth was to meet. Now the question is, why did their meetings do more harm than good? Verse 18, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Now Paul heard reports from his birds that, hey Paul, there are divisions in the church at Corinth. That instead of fellowshipping in a spirit of unity, there were factions and cliques. There were arguing, quarreling with one another. They were dividing the church. That is why when Paul begins his letter at 1 Corinthians, verse 10, chapter 1, his first appeal, his first call to them is what? Brothers, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Before he gets to all these other issues of spiritual gifts and communion and men and women's roles, right? And and immorality in the church, the first thing he highlights, he appeals, is unity. Because there was such steep ingrained division in this church. This division was like... Raging forest fire. Now, Paul is saying, if he had heard this about the church at Philippi, he wouldn't have believed it. No way. Yeah, there are some divisions between Eonia and Synthicae, but no, not at the church at Philippi, not at Ephesus, not at Galatia, but he says, Corinth, I believe it. Right? When I heard divisions, where? Corinth, yeah. Right? Because the division was so ingrained so, so strong in that church. And then in verse 19, Paul gets a little sarcastic, right? Heart of a pastor, I understand him, right? You get a little frustrated at saints and you resort to sarcasm, right? To highlight their rebellion against God. Verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. He's saying, of course, there must be sex. NAS, there must be factions. To show which of you are really approved by God. Apparently, some members of the Corinthian church, in the name of spiritual superiority, were separating themselves from others in the church. Oh, Paul, we're separated because we're mature. We're Gnostics. We're pneumaticoids, right? We're the spiritual ones, they are the unspiritual ones. And Paul is saying, Of course. You are dividing in the name of maturity, in the name of spirituality, in the name that you alone, your small group, subgroup in the church, has God's approval. Well, Paul says, no. The result is that by their division, the Lord's Supper is made invalid. It has nullified the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. They corrupted the unity of fellowship so much that communion had become a mockery. They were having supper, but it was not the Lord's Supper. They may have thought they were observing communion because they were saying the right things. They were passing the bread, passing the cup, reading scripture. But Paul says because of their attitude and behavior, the supper they eat is not the Lord's. Because they were dividing the church for which Christ died. Exactly what were they doing? I think verse 21 gives us a clue. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. For one remains hungry, and another gets drunk. And then he tells them in verse 33, when you come together, wait for each other. Right? So, what's going on here? It seems that through a cultural study, studying this letter, there was a division in the church and it divided between the rich Christians and the poor Christians. Let me kind of contextualize this to our context. Last night we had married fellowship, fellowship of married families. And one thing we realized, if you want to attract people to a Saturday night Bible study for families, you've got to have word, you got to have praise, you've got to have prayer. But you've got to have food, right? Food is very important. You, me too, I'm a pastor, but food is waiting for me. You know, I'm a little more eager to go, right? Because food is there. Now, suppose you went to the meal and you found out that a subgroup emailed each other and they met 30 minutes ahead of time. And they're eating crab, filet mignon, right? Sushi from the best sushi restaurant in Tustin. And you get there and you you walk in just as the guy finishes the last yellowtail. And the last night was great. We had burritos and hot wings. It was great. But then, now they're done with crab and filet mignon and the f- sushi, and then go, let's all eat together, not everybody's here, and have burritos and hot wings. Right? Well, that was what was happening. These rich Christians, it was potluck, right? New Testament church, they would all bring food. And you, the rich Christians would gather earlier and bring their expensive food and invite the rich upper class Christians. Because they don't want to associate with slaves. They don't want to associate with lower class Christians, right? So they gather together to dine first and then when the poor Christians come they were all eating together and in this way they were separating the church they were dividing the church that is why Paul says again in verse 33 when you come together wait for each other if you want to eat good food go ahead and eat good food but eat at home why bring filet mignons to church why just eat at home the purpose of the Lord's Supper is not for your pleasure, it is not to fill your stomachs, it is to remember Christ together as one church. Therefore, for Paul, their actions were unthinkable. Look at his words. I think you will agree with me. It, was, it seemed to Paul like they were doing this on purpose. There was an intentionality in the way they were conducting communion. Right. Their conduct fills Paul with such indignation that it calls forth a series. Uh, rhetorical questions intended to severely rebuke and shame these believers. Verse 22, the first question is full of irony and sarcasm. Don't you have homes to eat in? Why are you bringing food to the church and doing it here? Don't you have homes? Now, if you didn't have homes where you could have private meals, that's understandable. I can accept that, Paul is saying. But Paul knows them. They're rich Christians. Of course you have homes. Therefore, you are doing this deliberately. You are doing this intentionally in the presence of other believers who are poor. That could only mean one thing, Paul says. Verse 22 part B. That you despise the church of God. You despise the fact that you are put in together in one church with poor Christians. You would never dare to be seen with them in public. You will never attend their parties, never go to any social function where the poor, the slaves are present. But you despise the fact that you come to church and they're in your midst, that their children are associating with your children, that they are sitting next to you, and you despise. You look down the church of God, and not only that, you humiliate those who have nothing. It's intentional. They are doing this to degrade, to dishonor those who are poor. Because in the ancient world, class barriers were clear. It's not like that in America, right? That doesn't exist for us. But in the ancient world, class lines were something you didn't cross. Separations between men and women. Those who spoke Greek and barbarians who didn't. The educated and the uneducated. Jews and Gentile. Rich and poor. Those who are Roman citizens. Those who weren't. The cultured and the uncultured. They did not mix. Just by the way you dressed, your dialect, your hands, whatever, your jewelry. Everybody knew where you belonged and you never crossed those lines in social interactions. But in the church, all those barriers were destroyed, were set aside. Galatians 3.28, in the church there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You are one in Christ. The church is that one place, that one community where the rich and poor Slave, free, Jew and Gentile could commune together in love and respect. But these rich Christians despise the church and use the Lord's Supper as a way to humiliate those. Hey, get back down. You're not in our class. You're not part of our level, our status. Step aside, step down. It was their way of humiliating them. Paul is indignant that they would do this. So Paul says to them in verse 22b, What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Again, a sarcastic rhetorical question. And he answers it, Certainly not. For no church can glorify God if old distinctions as race, gender, and social class are allowed to persist, especially at the Lord's table. Paul rebukes them for dividing the church in that way. And so he goes now to verses 23-26 through 26, where he reminds them the purpose of the Lord's Supper. He goes back to when it all started. Here was Jesus Christ before the eve of His death with His disciples. And He instituted the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him. He had told them before. He's telling them again to remind them of the true purpose of communion. And We covered this section last week. And then he goes to the warnings of verses 27 through 34 Paul rebukes them, he reminds them and in 27:34 Paul says, "You continue in this course and there are severe consequences for you that you are experiencing already and therefore he warns them now in 27 to 34 there are three interpretive issues here that are been the source of untold difficulties for pastors throughout church history. Kept me, I lost sleep over this this week. I had Seren read a section of one interpretation. Does this make sense to you? Because you're not reading it so long that you're kind of lost. You forget what you believed in like five minutes ago. So can you read this and explain it to me? I mean, there's three interpretive issues here that are somewhat complex in 27 through 34. Let's go through them one by one. Paul says, because of the purpose and nature of the Lord's Supper, therefore, verse 27 Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Does it mean you are not to take communion if you have unconfessed sin? Does it mean you are not to take communion if you have an unresolved relational issue with others in the church? You are not to take communion. Is that what it means? Or does that mean, if you don't have a right attitude of worship, you're not to take communion? I don't think so. I mean, I think that's something that we believers should do all the time. I think every time we gather for worship on Sundays, we should all consider, is there unconfessed sin? Every time we read the Bible, we should consider, is there a brother or sister who has something against me? Every time we go to pray before the Lord, every time we come together for a fellowship, we need to ask ourselves, do I have the right heart? That's part and parcel of our Christian lives. But is that what Paul is saying here in verse 27? Again, the first rule of Bible interpretation is context. Context, context, context. What is Paul angry about? What is he jumping up and down and and sweating and and shouting? What is he talking about? The division of the church? And that's what he's alluding to. Eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is to use the Lord's supper to despise the church, to divide the church. That is what Paul is talking about. Where the rich are eating private meals, separated by the rest of the church, and by that, they're dividing the body. Paul is saying, this is the conduct that is unworthy of communion. This attitude and this behavior of dividing the church is to eat the bread in an unworthy manner. The truth is, we're all unworthy. If we think it's something personal, unconfessed sin, or our heart is not right, we're never right. Unworthy manner is eating in a way that would divide the church. And Paul says, it's not a minor sin. 27B, anyone who does this will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord that instead of remembering Christ, those who use it for their own benefit, to despise the body, humiliate others, they're on the same liability as those who were at Calvary and they crucified Christ. They are guilty of the same thing if they treat other believers in that way. If they despise and humiliate fellow believers, they're guilty as the one who pierced the Lord, who crucified Christ, who hammered the nails on His hands and His feet, They are just as guilty. Therefore, Paul says, verse 28, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And here is the second interpretive issue of this passage. What does it mean, examine himself? Does it mean to go into some introspective angst, dark night of the soul, wrestling of the heart? Do I have unconfessed sin? I have to examine myself. I mean, how do you examine yourself? With what? How do you know your own heart? Jeremiah 17, our hearts are deceitful. How can we examine ourselves? Are we to examine whether we are a true Christian or not? Are we to examine whether one has the right heart for worship? And again, we need to do this to some degree before every worship service. Every time we open the Bible, every time we pray, we have to kind of examine our hearts by the help of the Holy Spirit to do this. I don't believe that is what this verse is saying. It's not a call to examine oneself positionally. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you are, have some unconfessed sin or not. But again, by the context, it is a call to examine oneself relationally. Look at how you're taking communion. Consider how you are fellowshipping in the church. Is there an elitist attitude? Because of, hey, I'm of the noble Shin clan. Right, my Shin name goes all the way back to I don't know King Shin in Korea. So I can't associate with you lowly Lees and Kims out there. I don't know, right? Or my degree, my culture, taste, or right? I've traveled the world. Therefore, I have this group of people that I fellowship with in the church, but this group, no, because they're of the lower class. Do you have that elitist attitude when you come to the church, when you partake of communion? Do you consider yourself, I'm spiritual, I'm a group leader. You know, I know Greek and Hebrew, right? I know the Scriptures. And this guy's a young Christian, doesn't know if Hebrew is in the New Testament. He thinks it's in the Old, right? He other that elitist attitude. I mean, that is what Paul is talking about. Examine yourself. Is there any way by your attitude, by your behavior, you're, you're dividing the church... Despising the body and degrading, dishonoring, humiliating anyone who is a believer of Christ. That is the examination we are to go through before we take part in communion. This self examination is weighty and mandatory because Paul says, in verse 29: Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This judgment is obvious to me. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. At any point, you put yourself up in a position of pride, you better believe at that moment, God is against you. God is your enemy. At any point, when you're arrogant, drunk with pride, you prop yourself up over against the church and the Lord's ordinance, at that point, judgment is foregone conclusion. Because God opposes the proud, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Well, Paul says here in verse 29, without recognizing the body, now again, here's the third interpretive issue in this short passage. What does it mean to recognize the body? One translation has it discerning the body, another judging the body. I mean, there are many proposed interpretations of this phrase. A few of them, I had a difficult time just even understanding. So I can't even let alone try to explain it to you guys. But again, the view most convincing to me is the simplest one. Maybe I of have a simple mind, but I love simple answers. It's just the context, again. What does recognizing mean? It goes back to eating in a worthy manner. What does worthy manner mean? It goes back to those who were dividing the church. The sin of the church here was dividing the body so anyone who partakes of communion without recognizing the unity of the church, recognizing the uniqueness of the body of believers, that yes, it's true. When you're in the world, there are groups that are segregated according to race, gender, and social class. Some country clubs, golf, you can't even enter. Some groups, you can't participate because of your economic status. That's the way it is in the world. Clubs are all designated according to these categories. But when we come to the church, we must have a transition in thought, renewing our minds, that we must recognize that the body of Christ is different, it's unique. We're here. All those social categories are to be set aside. Where we're all one in Christ. Where we stand all as saved sinners Before the Lord. Whether Jew, Gentile, slave, slave, free, male or female, rich or poor. We have all been redeemed by the one sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Therefore anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing this. Recognizing that Christ has brought everyone together under his banner. The person incurs the judgment of God. And Paul says that is why some of you are weak, sick, a number of you have died. That's the reality of God's judgment. It's not a warning that it will happen throughout church history. But it's saying in the Corinthian church, the Lord is speaking through him, this judgment has to do with you not recognizing the body, the unity and the uniqueness of the body of Christ. Well, so we've covered two points. The purpose of the Lord's Supper, the practice of the Lord's Supper, and then finally the biblical participants of the Lord's Supper. A central question remains is that who should be admitted to the Lord's table? Who should be allowed to partake of the bread and the wine? There are three views. Number one is the open communion. The communion is offered to everyone in the worship service. You ask that only believers take the elements. You warn against unbelievers taking the elements. The individual decides for himself or herself whether he's a Christian or not. And they take the elements or not. There is no need for doctrinal unity in the church. No need for theological unity in the church. There is no check whether they affirm the gospel of Christ. The gospel that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. That is not even asked. Have you accepted Christ? You know, do you know Jesus Christ? That's a fight. You decide for yourself to take communion or not. That's open communion. Second view is closed communion. It is offered only to the members of a particular church or denomination. I talked to someone recently, and he went to a church where the pastor stood up and he said they had communion service is offered to all believers. He's like, great, but he explained they explained to him the believers means you have to be part of their church and part of their denomination, and if you're not, you're forbidden to partake of communion with them. So in a way they reject the universal church. Third view is close communion. Close communion. It is offered to those, to only those who openly profess personal faith in Jesus Christ. Offered only to those who affirm the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. They acknowledge the Trinity. They acknowledge the deity of Christ. They acknowledge total depravity. They acknowledge the authority of the Bible, all these things, the cardinal doctrines. And then they affirm and trust in the gospel of salvation that they are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, by Jesus Christ alone. Now, what do we believe? We did this last week at Cornerstone Bible Church. We humbly believe that close communion best reflects the instructions of the New Testament. That is our humble conviction. That is why we have a separate communion service for believers. For those who openly profess to be followers of Christ. Why do we believe this? Because we believe that only two ordinances are given to the church. The ordinance of baptism and communion. And those ordinances are for the church. They're for family members. We do not baptize infants. We do not baptize non-believers as if baptism confers grace. In the same manner, communion as well is only for believers. That's the example of the New Testament church, Acts 2, 41 and 42. They heard the message, they responded by faith, they were baptized, and then they broke bread. Paul's instructions here in 1 Corinthians 11 makes no sense. Verses 17-34 through makes no sense if unbelievers were participating in communion. Verse 18, Paul says, they are coming together as a church. Verse 18 again, Paul rebukes division. Hey, if unbelievers are present, they're already divided. How can you rebuke division? If the unbelievers are there, division is a a requirement, it's a necessity. Verse 27, there are only two ways of eating the elements in an unworthy manner. where they divide the body or a non-Christian partakes of the bread and the cup. Because it incurs the judgment of God. If I encourage a non-Christian to take the bread and take the cup, they're eating in an unworthy manner. Therefore, I'm incurring upon them God's judgment. I'm aiding in their rebellion against God and judgment against God. Verse 29, Paul calls them to recognize the body as one. An unbeliever that is present and participating in communion undermines that unity. As we pass the bread, how can you recognize the body as one, as a unique community of redeemed saints, if there are non-Christians partaking of the bread and cup with you? Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 10.16 is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ, as we participate together in communion, we give thanks and we affirm that we are together sharing in the benefits of Christ's death. How can an unbeliever do that? Verse 16b, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Our taking the one loaf affirms that we are participating in the redeemed community of God's people. To participate in the body of Christ with unbelievers goes against all of these truths. And then verse 17, there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. Here Paul highlights the symbolism of that one loaf of bread. That the unity of the body is reflected in the one bread. And so if unbelievers are partaking of this one bread, unbelievers who are enemies of Christ partake of the bread then and again undermines the purpose and nature of the Lord's Supper. That is why we believe that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is the memorial, that practice is to acknowledge the unity of the body, and thirdly, and I believe that best reflects teaching of New Testament, New Testament uh, scriptures. That is, the participants are to be believers only. Three final thoughts to wrap our time together. Maybe some applications for you. Uh, number one, in the context of the church, we're never to have exclusive fellowship. Now, if you guys want to have exclusive fellowship, of course. Right, you have a birthday party. You can't invite everyone, right? If you don't invite me, i will be hurt. But it's all right. I mean, I understand you can't invite everybody. So you need to have exclusive fellowship. You want to call some guys over for some activities, some sisters for a knitting night. You can't. Invite everyone, so you have to have exclusive fellowship, but not in the context of the church. Do it at home. Do it outside the church. But when we're gathered together on Sundays, and we're together in a Bible conference or a retreat, if a subgroup gathers together and you have exclusive fellowship, by that, whether intentional or not, to some degree, you are despising the church. You are dishonoring others. Uh, you are, in Paul's words, humiliating them. Whatever category you use, I want to hang out with fun people. I want to hang out with athletic people. I want to hang out with, I don't know, my age group. Whatever category you use, by doing that in the context of the fellowship of the church, you're despising the body. We are not to do that. We have the freedom to do that outside of church. You do it all you want, but not in the context of fellowship. Secondly, is there any time a believer should decline to participate in communion? Is there any reason we are justified in not coming to communion service and not partaking of the elements? Maybe you're in sin. Right? James, I, I, I have unconfessed sin. I'm not worthy. Or I'm, I I'm a conflict with this other brother in Christ. I'm not worthy. Or my heart is not right. You know, I believe that's when you need to take communion. Mm-hmm. You above all need to take communion so that you remember Christ's dad. That he died for that sin that you're, un- you're not confessing. And He sacrificed His whole life. A holy, perfect Lamb of God gave Himself. And you of all people in the church need to be reminded of that truth so that you will confess that day. Right? If you are not reconciled to a brother or sister, you need to be reminded today by taking the cup, taking the bread that Christ died to unite you to and you are divining yourself. If your heart is not right, then you need to be reminded of God's truth that you, might, that you, would, be, that you would have your heart's right. Right. Only two reasons you are not to take communion: you are not a Christian, and you are church disciplined. Step four of church discipline, where if you are treated as a gentile or tax collector, you are excommunicated. We don't consider you part of the family no longer. You are forbidden to partake of these elements. Only two reasons. And thirdly, you know these these Corinthian Christians. We're causing division in the church. What causes a church to fight like that? To split into factions? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, You say you're spiritual. I cannot address you as spiritual, but as worldly. I gave you milk, but you are not ready for solid food. You're still not ready. You are still worldly. For there is jealousy calling among you Are you not worldly? Are you not acting carnal? Division in the church is never because of personalities. Probably our personalities just don't gel. No. It's never because of different cultures or backgrounds. It's never because we just have different preferences. Division, crawling in the church, factions, is always a reason because of carnality carnality of pursuing the desires of the sinful flesh rather than being led by the Spirit of God to do God's will. James 4 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and you don't get it. Therefore, you kill, covet, you quarrel and fight. That is a reason for division in the church. If there's anyone struggling with that heart this morning, understand that it's you. It's not others. It's not culture. It's not any other reasons. It's because of your covetous desires in your heart. We ask, in lot of the warnings of 1 Corinthians 11, to humbly repent, recognize the unity and the uniqueness of the body of Christ. Let's pray. With God, we are humbled by these truths because Paul could have been riding to the church at Cornerstone here in Garden Grove. We are none better than the church at Corinth. If anyone here, especially me, if I'm pointing the finger at them, I have no right for I am as guilty as the believer at Corinth of despising the church and dividing the body of Christ and misusing the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray that you grant us humble hearts to to see that these words are written to us and they are applicable to us individually. And Lord, we are thankful to you for the communion where we can be reminded of your death. But we know that that's the cornerstone of our faith. That's that central event of our, of our lives, of, of redemptive history. May we ever recall that to our minds, not just once a month, but every opportunity that we might live in the shadow of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.